0: Welcome to Will Wright Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Will Wright. Today we're doing Praying the Mass, Session 1, What is the Sacred Liturgy? So in this five-part series, we're going to be looking at the Mass. What is it? Uh, What is the Liturgy of the Word? What is the Liturgy of the Eucharist? We're also going to be looking at the introductory rites, the concluding rites, sacred music, all sorts of different things, all about the Mass, and how can you and I pray the Mass better. So if you're a, a Catholic in the pews uh, on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, this series is going to be perfect for you. If you've been away from the church for any reason and you think, you know, I, I feel like I've missed the Mass. What is it about the Mass that's drawing me back? Well, hopefully we can elucidate that. And then anyone who's not Catholic and you just want to know what the heck is the Mass? Why are Catholics so concerned with the Eucharist, And mass and going to mass on Sundays, every Sunday, every holy day of obligation. What's that about? Why is it celebrated every day in the Catholic Church? Well, this is, this is the session for you. And we're doing this, uh, at St. John Paul II High School, uh, where I teach in Avondale, Arizona. And, uh, this is gonna, this is a five session series for really anyone in the area who wants to join us. So if you're listening to this and you live in Phoenix, and the second session hasn't dropped yet. That means that you know you can still come and join us on Tuesday nights at six p m at the school. uh this first session is february twenty eighth I'm actually recording this audio a little bit before, just so I don't have to worry about recording the session itself uh allows for a little bit more of a free form sort of class. But, uh, the other, the other key aspect is the question and answer portion. I love Q and A and, and people always ask great questions. They come up with some things that maybe I hadn't even anticipated. And, uh, and we have a good conversation. So if you're in the area and you'd like to join us next week, please come on out. You can email me, uh, at work at w w r i g h t at jp2catholic.org. Uh, or as always, if you're a regular subscriber to this podcast, um, you can always email me at will.write.catholic at gmail.com with any comments, questions, really anything. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I was looking at the analytics and it looks like we have, uh, some subscribers in almost every single one of the 50 States in the United States. Uh, if you know anyone in Hawaii, Alaska, I think North North Dakota, Colorado. Uh there's a few other states that are missing, so maybe uh share those with your friends, but I was also looking we have listeners in the United Kingdom, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in India, uh all over the world. So uh to those listening, thank you. It's wonderful to have you with us. I hope that you're getting a lot out of these sessions. Um these podcasts rather these episodes. So with this session uh praying the mass session 1. I hope that we can get at the root of what is the mass and why does it matter. And uh, I'm just I'm so glad that you're here. So without further ado, let's dive in. What is the mass? Most practicing Catholics understand that Mass is important, it's something they should go to, but the opinions about Mass are all over the ideological spectrum. And if you talk to any Catholic, you know this is true. And For this series, I hope it, my hope is to share what the Mass is from the mind and heart of the Church. Of course, I have my own opinions about liturgical aesthetics, architecture, art, and the like, but I'm going to try here to stick to principles. And I make my promise here to you that if I offer an opinion rather than church teaching, I will explicitly make sure you know that it's that, it's an opinion. So today in part one, we'll be answering the broad question, what is the sacred liturgy? We're going to be going light speed over a a vast amount of ground, but I hope that it's nonetheless sufficiently explained. In parts two to five, we'll be looking at the introductory rites, the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist, and the concluding rites. And these four main divisions are packed with theological meaning, with symbolism, with beauty, and I am thrilled to be sharing it with you. So in the first part, the sacred and divine liturgy, we're going to start by looking at the etymology of the word liturgy. And don't worry, it's not going to get too nerdy, uh, but I think it's worth going over. So what is, what is the liturgy, right? this weird Greek word? It certainly sounds like a strange word to an English speaker. Well, liturgy comes from two Greek words, the first being leitos, which means public, and ergo, which means to do. Uh, so the Greek word for liturgy is leitergos, which is the same as the Latin word lector, which both of them basically mean a public servant, So in ancient Athens, in ancient Greece, public service was done by wealthier citizens by using their own wealth. This public service could be the manager of a a gymnasium, the chorus singers in a theater, one who provides a banquet, one who funds and offers ships used for war to the state. In the Greek Old Testament, the term liturgy meant any kind of general service in the temple. The author of Hebrews states this, they say, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, the Greek word there being the that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. That's Hebrews 8, 6. So the meaning of liturgy in the New Testament is established as the actions of the priest after the order of the high priest Jesus Christ. And since we're speaking of terms, it's worth mentioning that in the Eastern Catholic churches, the term liturgy is only used to describe the divine liturgy, that is, the celebration of the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist. In the West, including the Latin rite, the term liturgy is used for the sacred liturgy, which is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, but liturgy is also used for all official services, all the various rites, ceremonies, prayers, and sacraments of the Church. Really, this gets at the heart of the Greek and Roman idea of that public service, right? That idea that God is doing something which is going to benefit the good of the whole world. And we could also ask what liturgy isn't. Liturgy first is is not primarily private devotions. Devotional practices are indispensable, beautiful expressions of the heart of man being offered to God in love. But liturgy, on the other hand, is primarily what God is doing for us through the ministry of the church in which we enter in and take part. In the liturgy, God is reaching into our humanity as he did when the Son became flesh and lifting us up to be more like him. St. Justin Martyr records around the year 164 AD what the liturgy looked like in his day early in the history of the church. And the full quotation, if you're interested, can be found in paragraph 1345 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But I'll summarize it here. We'll walk through it. So first, the lessons are read. The lessons are the Old and New Testament scripture readings. Then a sermon is given by the bishop. There are prayers over the people, both those present and those throughout the world. The sign of peace is exchanged. The offering of bread and water and wine are brought up by the deacons. There's a lengthy prayer of thanksgiving done by the bishop. The bread and wine are consecrated by the words of Christ spoken at the Last Supper, and they become the Eucharist. And then the people acclaim amen, saying, yes, so be it, I believe. And then Holy Communion is distributed to those present and then taken to those who cannot be in attendance. So we can see here that There is a structure to the sacred liturgy, and there's human involvement and participation. And remember, this is St. Justin Martyr writing in 164 AD. But as we'll come to see, the sacred liturgy is about the work that God has done and is doing in which we enter in and take part. So it's not merely human involvement and participation. Over the next four sessions, and this one as well, we'll be exploring the Holy Mass of the Latin Rite using our current Missal, but I'll also be touching on some historical points of reference in the Roman Missal of 1962 and before, and I'll also be bringing in elements of the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom used in the Byzantine Rites. What the liturgy is, which is our subject for the remainder of today's session, does not change substantially from one form or expression of the liturgy to another. However, there is a beautiful, legitimate liturgical diversity within the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church of Jesus Christ. Over the last few centuries, the Church has been welcoming back many groups of Byzantine Catholics into full communion with the Pope in Rome. And these Byzantine Greek churches are called sui juris because they govern themselves. They have their own law under the authority of the Pope but they retain their language, their customs, rituals, and the like. Likewise, there's other non-Byzantine Eastern Catholic churches in full communion with Rome. So the Catholic Church is far broader than just the Latin Rite, but the Latin Rite is the largest. And I'm assuming that most of those listening uh, to this podcast, as well as to those present uh, for these sessions are going to be of the Latin rite. And so we're really going to be looking at, at that. How do we pray the Mass? Now we have a working understanding of the sacred liturgy as transcending each specific rite of the Catholic Church, but substantially the liturgy. What is it? What is the Mass? Well, Dr. Scott Hahn of Franciscan University is fond of referring to the Mass as the continuation through space and time of the Incarnation. Right, of, of Christ becoming, of the Son of God becoming flesh, and sharing in our humanity so that we could share in his divinity. Dr. David Fagerberg of Notre Dame speaks of it in highly technical terms, so if you don't understand what I'm about to say, don't worry. But he says this, the perichoresis of the Trinity canonically extended to invite our synergistic ascent into deification. Now maybe that sounded all Greek to you, which would be good because it is mostly Greek words. but And there's time for for that, for academic, technical explanations of the Mass. I, for one, love it, Uh, but I've also studied theology, so I get a lot out of it. But what about the average Catholic in the pew or the lapsed Catholic or someone who just wants to understand, okay, enough with the technical mumbo-jumbo. What is it? Well, surely there's a way to define the Mass that's in simple terms, But the caveat is, without watering down the meaning, and I'll be repeating the following phrase about 3,000 times over the coming weeks, because it's vital to our understanding of the Mass. At any rate, here it is. The most holy sacrifice of the Mass is the perfect self-offering of God the Son to God the Father in the power of God the Holy Spirit, in which we are invited to participate and grow in our communion with God. Now, maybe that wasn't simple enough. Let's let's put it even more simply. The Mass is the self-offering of the Son to the Father in the Spirit, in which we are invited to take part. The Mass is the self-offering of the Son to the Father in the Spirit, in which we are invited to take part. So now that we've defined what the Mass is, then we can ask, well, what is it for? Why do we go to Mass? For many, it's a checking of the boxes, right? Yes, I went to Mass on Sunday. I received my spiritual vitamin pill. But is that it? Is is it about getting something out of Mass? I mean, how many of, of you listening have heard someone say that? Well, I, I don't get anything out of it. I'm not getting much out of that. You know, I don't like the mu- music. I don't like the preaching. Well, is that what we're there for? Is it primarily something that we are doing? From our definition, we know that Mass is the self-offering of the son to the father in the spirit in which we're invited to take part. It's something that God is doing and we are privileged to be beckoned to the wedding supper of the lamb. So what is mass for? Why do we go? Well, we go to encounter and worship God in the authentic way that he desires and be transformed by that encounter. These are the two main ends of the Holy Mass. First, the glorification of God, and secondly, the sanctification of man. Through the sacraments, beginning with baptism, God, who became one of us, dwells within us as in a temple and makes us like himself. And through this communion and union, we are made holy by God. This is the sanctification of man. As St. Irenaeus says in the second century, he says, the glory of God is man fully alive, but the life of man is the vision of God. So apart from true worship, how can we be formed in this vision of God? How can we be fully alive and thus glorify God by our lives apart from the mass? Well, we can't. And as St. Padre Pio said, it would be easier for the world to survive without the sun than to do so without the holy mass. So what is the mass for? It's to glorify God and to allow his sacred action to make us holy. And to really understand the sacred action of the Holy Eucharist, we have to time travel. We have to go back in time 2,000 years to Jerusalem. The the most holy sacrifice of the mass is the presenting once more the re-presentation of the one and only sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the coming present once again to our senses through the mystery of God, of the entrance into Jerusalem of Christ, the Last Supper, his suffering, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. The Holy Mass marks all of these things and makes them present to us here and now, outside of time. And we're going to get into the specifics of that in the coming weeks. The Holy Mass is a memorial Of Jesus suffering and death. It's not a reenactment, nor is it a mere remembering. In the mass by the power of God, these saving actions become truly present under the signs and symbols that God uses to communicate with us. He knows that we are flesh and blood. He knows that we're body and soul. And so he communicates with us through tangible signs, audible words, ritual actions, postures, and gestures. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches in paragraphs 1359 and 1362, quote, The Eucharist, the sacrament of our salvation accomplished by Christ on the cross, is also a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for the work of creation. The Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the making present and the sacramental offering of his unique sacrifice in the liturgy of the church, which is his body. In Christ, all things are restored and made new. And primarily, we enter into this saving reality through our baptism into Christ and his body, the church. In baptism, we are a new creation. Baptism then orders us to communion with him in receiving truly and substantially his most holy body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. The Catechism goes on to teach in paragraphs 1365 and 1366. In the Eucharist, Christ gave us his very body, which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present the sacrifice of the cross, because it is its memorial, and because it applies its fruit. And so how are the graces that Christ superabundantly merited on the Holy Cross applied to us almost 2000 years later? Well, it's first through baptism, but it's perpetuated in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The one holy sacrifice of Jesus Christ is presented once more in an unbloodied manner so that we may receive the fruits of this great gift. Thus, the Holy Eucharist has the power to forgive sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. United as one body, the church offers this one sacrifice until the end of time for the good of the church and the good of the whole world. Each time our Holy Mother, the church, celebrates the sacred mysteries, it's Christ who is the high priest, the saving victim, the place of sacrifice, and the one mediator between God and man. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So the Mass is not what we do for God. It's the perfect prayer and sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ to the Father in the Spirit because it's the whole of the saving action of Christ, transcending time and space. As lacking as we are and as sinful as we are, we enter into this reality of the one perfect sacrifice. Our imperfect offerings and sacrifices are united with the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and are made perfect through that union. We cooperate with the one sacrifice and we receive the saving fruits of the one sacrifice by the mediation of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glorification of the father, we are made holy and we are transformed to be like Jesus and as Catholics, we understand that at the Mass, in true worship, this sacred action is not a mere remembrance or a reenactment. These realities are coming present once again. So it's fitting that every Sunday is a holy day of obligation because every Sunday is a mini Easter. And how does this, how does this fit into the ancient understanding of the Sabbath? Well, the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath, the solemn day of rest that's set aside for the Lord. And this goes all the way back to the dawn of creation, when God made everything in six days and then rested on the seventh. The Sabbath day also marks the work of the Lord of acting on Israel's behalf and freeing them from slavery in Egypt. The Sabbath is a day of rest and refreshment. Jesus shows us in the Gospels that this doesn't necessarily mean refraining from all work without exception. Instead, we realize that the poor are to be refreshed as well. And so the Sabbath is a day of doing good for others as well. As with many things, the new covenant fulfills and elevates the old covenants. The Sabbath remains on Saturday, but Sunday is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Sunday is the eighth day of the week. It is symbolic of the new creation, which was brought about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week and therefore consecrated a new moral commandment. We are to keep holy the day of the Lord by celebrating Sunday in an outward, visible, public, and regular worship as a sign of universal beneficence to all, according to the Catechism. Our Sunday worship is the fulfillment of the moral command of the Old Covenant to keep holy the Sabbath day. The Sunday celebration of the Eucharist on the day set aside for the Lord is the heart of the church's life. When we celebrate the Sunday Eucharist, we are marking the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this way, again, every Sunday of the year is a mini Easter. The faithful gather together each Sunday, celebrate in the liturgical life what Christ has done, who he is, what he has taught, and what he's doing through us today. Therefore, we go to church on each Sunday as well as Holy Days of Obligation. As St. John Chrysostom says, he says you cannot pray at home as at a church where there's a great multitude, where exclamations are cried out to God as from one great heart and where there is something more, the union of minds, the accord of souls, the bond of charity, the prayer of the priests. Catholics are obligated and privileged to participate in the Holy Mass on Sundays and other Holy Days of Obligation. The Eucharist is the beginning of our life of grace. It's the apex of the mountain for which we yearn. And unless we're excused for a serious reason, such as illness or the care of an infant or dispensed by our pastor, we fall into grave sin if we skip on going to Mass on Sundays or Holy Days of Obligation. And the reality is we are not saved by ourselves. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they need you and me. We must be present in the parish to pray as a Eucharistic assembly. And of course, there's there's many places in the world where there's a severe shortage of priests. In these cases, even, the people gather to break open the word and to pray together. There's still that union of minds, that accord of souls, the bond of charity that St. John Chrysostom mentions. So God rested on the seventh day from the work of creation. Therefore, the Lord's day, the fulfillment of the Sabbath must be marked by an enjoyment of what the catechism in 2184 says of adequate rest and leisure to cultivate. And that word is going to be very important, cultivate later on in this session, uh, familial, cultural, social and religious lives. So Sunday is for family, for culture, for society, and for religion. And as much as possible, we are to refrain from, as 2185 says, engaging in work or activities that hinder the worship owed to God, the joy proper to the Lord's day, the performance of the works of mercy, and the appropriate relaxation of mind and body. We should not, however, neglect our duties to our family. As St. Augustine teaches us, The charity of truth seeks holy leisure. The necessity of charity accepts just work. The Catechism of the Catholic Church also teaches us that, in uh, paragraph 2188, that in respecting religious liberty and the common good of all, Christians should seek recognition of Sundays and churches' holy days as legal holidays. Interesting. They have to give everyone a public example of prayer, respect, and joy, and defend their traditions as a precious contribution to the spiritual life of society. Even if our society does not recognize the risen Lord, nonetheless, it's our joy and duty to witness to the joy of his resurrection every Sunday. Every Sunday is a mini Easter, and it should be celebrated as such. So we need, the, we need the Holy Mass, but so does our modern culture. In a lot of ways, we've lost a sense of wonder and awe. Wonder and awe at the glory of the natural order is lost. Philosophers, theologians, political thinkers, historians have debated the concept of the perfect world forever. And in our fractured state, our increasingly polarized state, true consensus doesn't seem likely or possible. In the court of public opinion, without a concerted popular effort toward aiming at the same goal, the likelihood of achieving it is low. And as to pride, it's not controversial to make the claim that most people today are either unabashedly or unwittingly self-focused. Mass helps us get outside of ourselves because, as I hope I've shown by now, mass is primarily what God is doing. And if we reach back into history, we even see that the greatest minds of science were motivated by wonder and awe at the majesty of God's creation. The foundational underpinnings of true progress and human flourishing comes from without, not from within. And what does a wonderless, blasé attitude do to a society? What becomes of a culture? Well, what we need is to put the cult back in culture. Culture is connected intimately to worship. The root word is cultus, from which arises the English word cult. Cultus comes from the Latin verb colare, which means to till. This is why we have the word agriculture. Agri meaning field, cultus meaning till. And in the Middle Ages, cultus came to mean adoration or veneration specifically. The prime act of worship is sacrifice. It's getting outside of oneself in order to show that worth is found outside of the self. Worship could thus be seen as giving worth, right? That worth-ship, what we, uh, what we honor, what we give worth to. So what happens when we lose a sense of wonder and awe? It's simple. We start to worship inwardly. We start to worship ourselves Instead of the worship of one God, the replacement has been the worship of over seven billion gods of a type. And when every person is the master of their own domain, then communal ties, even family ties, begin to crumble. What would happen if we cultivate a sense of wonder and awe in our own life? I would imagine that we would start to be more appreciative, maybe less cynical, we would be less pessimistic, more pragmatic, if not actually optimistic. We would have a longer viewpoint and a shorter fuse. We would see beauty all around us instead of fixating on the ugly. We will understand that we're not the center of the universe, but will not be lost to a sort of existential dread. And this last thought, I think, is one of the most pressing Given the loss of wonder and awe, our world has descended into meaningless existentialism. Shouting into the void in a primal scream is the only prescription for a nihilistic culture. Which, by the way, is why our comedy is not funny anymore. Of course, if we recapture the sense of wonder and awe, then we realize that nihilism itself is nothing. We realize that there's something greater And that we're part of a more important whole, and this isn't just some sort of psychological babble. This is uh, like Marx would say is like the opiate of the masses is religion. No, it's not that. What we're saying about the mass and about God and about the the Paschal Mystery is true. It actually matters, and what God has done in the Incarnation is share in our humanity so that we can share in His divinity. He wants to bring us into union and communion with him and with everyone else in union and communion with him for all of eternity. He wants our good. And so wonder and awe are not fixtures of a bygone era. They're the beginning of true wisdom. In fact, we could call them by their traditional name, fear of the Lord. And this fear is a filial one as a son to a father. When we begin to let God be God and understand that we are not, then we begin to see things differently. We take ourselves less seriously and take the creator more seriously. We find ourselves not out there or within, but rather where we place worth itself. This fear of the Lord and putting things right is the foundation of getting culture right. As then Cardinal Ratzinger said in his book, A New Song for the Lord, he said trivializing faith is not a new enculturation, but the denial of its culture and prostitution with the non-culture. So let us put the cultus back in culture, tilling and cultivating a sense of wonder, awe, and amazement. There's so much to be grateful for in this world. And it doesn't take long to recognize the giver of good gifts who gratuitously and generously generated all things and then respond in gratitude. And as we'll explore in the coming weeks, the very word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. So how can we pray the Mass better? Well, I'll leave you with this. We can begin with humility and gratitude. And I want to end today by emphasizing that the Mass is primarily what God is doing Jesus Christ is our high priest in every age of the church's history, in the catacombs, in the Byzantine period, in the Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, in the Counter-Reformation, and up until today. And we're invited to take part in what he is doing. Truly, the worship of God becomes unintelligible if he becomes separated from the sacred action of Jesus Christ, offered to the Father in the Spirit. In fact, this sacrifice of the Mass is the heart of Christian worship. If we're not celebrating the memorial of the Paschal Mystery from the heart and ministry of the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church of Jesus Christ, then we are not worshiping God as he desires and as he has instituted. We are not worshiping God the way that he wants. And this is why the Catholic Church calls the Holy Eucharist the font and apex, the source and summit of the Christian life. There is no church, properly speaking, apart from the Eucharist and the Holy Mass. To reiterate the words of Padre Pio, it would be easier for the world to survive without the Son than to do so without the Holy Mass. There's so much more to say, even about the basic theological foundations of the Holy Mass, but this is just the beginning. So I hope you'll join me over the next four weeks as we continue to understand the Mass more fully and journey through Lent together towards Easter. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this presentation on Praying the Mass, Session 1. It's wonderful to have you with us. If you've enjoyed this, please, please, please share it with your friends and family on social media. Text it out. Send it. uh, Talk about it via word of mouth, if it's been a blessing to you. And I hope we'll see you back next week for session two, as we look at the introductory rites of the mass. Uh, and we'll also be getting a little bit more into uh, sacred music. Really, we're looking at the mass of the, the who, the when, the where, what do things look like? We'll start talking about symbols and gestures. It's going to be great. So I hope you join us Let's end in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.